life does surrender bring victory. Amen? <clears throat> victory it does bring, both now and eternally. Yet Christ does not always view victory as we view victory. Unfortunately. To Christ, our victory comes from great faith. And there is no way of learning great faith apart from trials and tribulations. It just doesn't happen. It just can't be Billy Graham overnight. Trials are God's school of faith. And it's far better for us to learn to trust God than to embrace and trust in the temporal joys of the world and the pleasures of this passing world because they are passing. Faith sees a greater good in Christ than in all the earthly treasures. I just think about this when I'm, you know, when I'm writing all this stuff because I'm, I'm just basically always preaching to myself. And so when I'm thinking, like, do I really see Christ greater than all earthly treasures? And how does that manifest in my life? We are not to live for the earthly things. Rather, we are to live for Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But what shall I choose? I do not know. I'm torn between the two. Of course, it's better. To, I desire to part and be with Christ, which is better by far. But it's more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain. We're talking about your mother. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and will continue with all of you with your, for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you, again, your joy in Christ Jesus will overflow on account of me. That's Paul talking. With faith, I can do all things. Without faith, I shall neither have the inclination nor the power to do anything in the service of God. We don't have it in the natural man. If you want to find those who serve God the best, you must look for people who have the most faith. Little faith will save a person, but little faith cannot do great things. That's Spurgeon. We are to remember whose we are, capital W, and whom we serve. Remember that Paul writes in Galatians, and this is the verse I alluded to last week in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul reminds us in these verses that as Christians, we are to live the Christ life through his power, for his glory, for our good. It is not in our own strength, because if we try to do it in our own strength, it'll be burned up and it's fruitless. It's wasting all your time. The apostle goes on to say in Philippians, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, as I just was saying. And Come Away, My Beloved, which is a really cool book. It, Francis J. Roberts, right? It's, it's written like Jesus is writing to you, you know, like Jesus Calling, but it's a diff- it, it was uh, the original Jesus Calling 100 years ago. Margaret Ayrick gave it to me, so I don't know when it was first published, but probably in 1800s, <laughs> back when I was a little child. <laughs> I have planned ahead for you. You hold me by my right hand, David says in the Psalms. You will guide me with your counsel. Behold, am I a God that is afar off and not a God that is near? For in the midst of difficulties, I will be your support. In the darkness, I am your light. There is no darkness that can hide my face from the eye of faith. My beauty and my radiance are the lovelier in darkness. My beauty and my radiance are the lovelier in darkness. 
In grief, my comfort is more poignant. In failure, my encouragement, the most welcome. In loneliness, the touch of my presence more tender. You are hidden in me, and I will multiply both the wisdom and the strength in due proportion to meet the demands of every occasion. If you do not have the grace to meet that occasion at this moment, you don't have the need. He gives, need, he gives grace to meet each need you're in. I am the Lord your God. I know no limitations. Hallelujah for that. I know no lack. I need not reserve my stores, for I always have a fresh supply. You can by no means ever exhaust my infinite resources. Let your heart run wild. Let your imaginations go vagabond. No extravagance of human thought can ever plumb the depths of my planning and provision for my children. For I know the plans, he says in Jeremiah, I have for you. Plans to prosper and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Rejoice, therefore, and face each day with joy. For I have planned ahead for you and made all necessary arrangements and reservations. I love somebody that does that. I hate doing that. I hate making airplane tickets or reservations. I, I just hate it, you know. But if somebody says, oh, you want to go? It's all planned? Here, you just be here at this time, and this is what you need to pack. Perfect. Perfect. I'm a, I'm a go. Don't make me in charge. I don't like those two words. My sister is amazingly great at that. We went to England with them. And, I mean, I didn't know you could see that many things in England. It was insane. We were staying at this house, and, and she, just, she just did everything. You know, we took these day trips. If I had time, which I don't, cause it, but I have a hilarious story of me driving in England trying to keep up with my crazy brother who drives 9,000 miles an hour on the wrong side of the road. Well, I'm just going to have to tell you this because I told it the other day, and it was just so funny. I laughed myself to almost silly, but my daddy was, I was a desi- one of the designated drivers, and Chip was like five million miles away up, and I knew I was going to lose him, and, and my daddy used to call me Missy, he goes, Missy, you're getting too close, you're getting too close to the side, I got to keep up with him, Dad, I got to keep up with him, and we didn't have any air conditioning, the ro- windows were rolled down, because it was, they don't believe in air conditioning in cars in England, I guess, I don't know, it was sweltering hot, and, but all the windows were rolling down, and all of a sudden, you hear this, and I looked over and I thought, you've been shot. I thought my dad had been shot. And I hit the rearview mirror off of somebody's car on the side of the road. And he was just like covered with glass. I said, I told you you were getting too close. <laughs> but I didn't stop even. I just kept going. <laughs> well, if I had, I would have still been in England. Because Chip was like 900 miles away already. And I mean, you go on these turnarounds and mean, which road do you take? I mean, it's insane. And you're driving on the wrong side of the road. Every two miles, there's a roundabout. Yes, right, exactly. And, I, and I'm just kind of going, okay, where am I going? And then when you go down to this place, we were staying in this, this castle thing, and you, to get into it, the bushes, talk about claustrophobic, the bushes were like 500 feet high, and the little road was this, this narrow. And so you just had to go, look ahead, look ahead, look ahead, look ahead. Don't think about looking uh, you know, to the side. because you think like maniacs. There. I know, they right? They, they, they do. I mean, it's like oh, oh, you were right there with us. I was right there with them. There's somebody still talking about me. <laughs> but thank goodness they don't know who I am. We were driving in the city with another couple. My husband and I went, and we got in the bus lane oh, by accident. Oh, oh, and oh! We're in a red light, and we're like. You guys were in the bus lane, and this cab driver was right next to us. And you know, if you're right here, and he just looked over at us and went, 
idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not, not, probably not. Anyway, no, okay. because some of the uh, English Caribbean yeah, islands, right. they're uh, that they, way. They drive, yeah, that, that, are, that are British, they're owned by England. Uh, sure, sure, sure. They, yeah. they drive on right. the left side. Mm-hmm. I'll have to take note and not go. Okay, <laughs> Bogotowski says, all the commandments of God are commandments of love. All the commandments of God are commandments of love. If we can just remember that. But he doesn't tell us to do something out of just because I'm a big sitting up here, you know, throwing out commands. They're they're given because he loves us and they're good for us. They're they're for our good, tending to our real good and our great happiness. Far from being grievous to those who have faith and love, the practice thereof is life and peace. The world may think it's grievous burden, but this is a great mistake indeed. Sin is grievous. Sin is grievous. In hatred, envy, anger, revenge, pride, there is nothing but torment and slavery. But in love, there is sweet rest and pleasure. Thus a sinner always punishes himself and is robbed of great peace and blessing by transgressing the commandments of God. Um, Bessie told me about David asking her why her, um, the police... You want to tell the story? Well, I'll tell it. Why the police would stop a car and give them a ticket or warning whenever, and I'm probably selling it wrong, but anyway. What, um, and she, whatever answer she gave was the answer that was a wonderful example regarding our obedience to the Christian faith. She told David that someone gets a driver's license, it's both a privilege and a responsibility, and it brings much pleasure. It opens up so much of the world to them. Prior to getting a license, they could only go as far as they could walk or ride with someone. In fact, to this day, I will say, I'm 66 years old. The day I turned 16 was the best day of my life. <laughs> it was like, freedom, freedom. I could go get an icy or bubble gum or do whatever I wanted to. I mean, it was just like wonderful. <laughs> but I didn't even have a car. I had to wait, you know, whatever. Anyway, it opens up so much of the world. Prior to getting a license, they could only go as far as they could walk, blah, blah, blah. With the driver's license, you go exactly where you want, when you want, no matter how far it is. But with the license, there are rules or commands we must obey, so we will not hurt ourselves or someone else. The rules or commands are for our good and for the good of others. When we break them, we suffer the consequences of either, either a ticket or worse, a wreck, or even worse, hurting ourselves or someone else. That is why God has put the police to enforce these things. Paul writes in Romans 13, 1 through 5, Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and angel, angel, agent of wrath, for he does not 
bear this sword for nothing. He is God's servant, agent rent, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also because of conscience. In the same way, God has given his children much freedom. Right? He's like, I think of myself as sheep in a, in a huge pasture. And you can, he doesn't say you can't go over that tree or you can't go, you know, run to the left or to the right. He gives you much freedom to be you. He's created each one of us to be us in this in this field, and he, and and anyway, he he knows what's best. He knows God has given us freedom, but he also knows both what will harm us and what is best for us. And by the way, we want what he wants because to will what he wills brings peace, there much peace. He therefore has given us commands to follow through his word. When we do, we are blessed. But when we don't, we will do as well, there are eventual consequences. To be sure, there are always showers of blessings for the obedience that comes from our faith, but there are most certainly consequences, consequences which stem from our sin because all sin brings death and bears consequences. These are given to keep us from sinning because God doesn't want us to walk down that path, just like you don't want your children to walk down that path. God is faithful to discipline those he loves. He does not want us to wallow in the pig pen. He doesn't want us to waste our life, and you don't want to waste your own life either. Quite certainly, they're not, not all trials are the result of disobedience. Certainly, they're not. Indeed, God desires to grow us up in him, and his effective tool of choice is often through trials and tribulations. Things that so rock our world so our roots will grow down deep in him. There is purpose in all that he allows in the life of his child. This builds in us, along with a million other things, the sure knowledge of Christ's amazing sufficiency. When you walk through the valley of death, I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. He is always more than enough. Indeed, he overflows in the life of the willing child. His desire is for us to be like Jesus, not to kick against the goats like he told Paul. Why are you kicking against the goats? This is what you're going to be doing for good. This is going to be good. And I mean, he's done that to me so many times. Like, I don't want this. Like, just be quiet. I'm not, or like he told Moses, I'm, not, I'm done with this now. We're not going to have this conversation again about the promised land. You're not going to go in there. You can go up on the top of the mountain and see it, but you're not going in. It's done. I've gotten some of those. It's done. You know, embrace what I've allowed and, and, and see what I'm going to do. Don't be kicking against it. Don't be trying to stop what he allows. Let us note how far from satisfactory is the state of those who are content with sound doctrinal opinions and orthodox correct views of the gospel, while in their daily life they give way to ill temper, ill nature, malice, envy, quarreling, squabbling, bickering, surliness, passion, snappish language, and crossness of word and manner. And you can add whatever I didn't say that comes to you. Such persons, whether they know it or not, are daily proclaiming that they are not Christ's disciples. It is nonsense to talk about justification and regeneration and election and conversion and the uselessness of works unless people can see in us 
practical Christian love. This is about John Riley. Do we manifest practical Christian love? Moses states in Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2, and I, I know y'all are going to be glad that we're um, almost ending this Bible study because I'm in the Old Testament, and I'm, every time I'm in the Old Testament, I go, wow, this is so good, this is so good. So I, I, like, I had to go through and take out some of the, these quotes because it was, I, I love Deuteronomy. It's really one of my favorite books. But anyway, my, Moses says, Deuteronomy 4, 1 through 2, Hear now, O Israel, the decrees and laws I am about to teach you. Follow them so that you may live and may go in and take possession of the land the Lord, the God, the Father is giving you. And whenever they talk about that, you can think about that as an abundant life. When you are, you want to take hold of that abundant life. They wanted to take hold of the promised land. You wanted to take. That was a good shot. What? Uh, she is very good. <laughs> She's good. She can. Uh, she can bring her. It's just water. Wake up, Jerry. Land, you're asleep. Get that water on you. Do not add to what I command you, and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands the Lord your God has given you. We take possession of our promised land, a.k.a. the abundant life, through the door of obedience. That's how we do it. Moses goes on to state further in Deuteronomy 4, 5 through 9. See, I have taught you decrees and laws as the Lord my God commanded me, so that you may follow them in the land you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully, for this will show your wisdom. It shows our wisdom and understanding to the nations who will hear about all these decrees and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. What other nation is so great to have their gods near them the way the Lord our God is near us whenever we pray to him? And what other nation is so great as to have such a righteous decree, law of this body of laws I am setting before you today? Only be careful. I mean, it's just constant and all throughout scripture. Be careful. Watch. Watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen. What has he done in your past? Write it down. Have standing stones in your family so that you can go back when times get dry and cold. And where are you, Lord? Oh, he was faithful then. He will be faithful again. Or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. In Deuteronomy 7, 9, Know therefore the Lord your God is God. He is the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to a thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commands. The purposes of God's wonderfully sweet actions toward his people was manifold, not the least of which was to point other nations to him. That's why he's chronically saying, do do not blend with the world. How will anybody know you're different than the world? Christians are to be living examples of the love of God, pointing others to him. We have this responsibility as modern-day Christians. We have responsibility. And he came for the whole world, not just Alabama, amen? Not just our little spheres. I mean, we're, I'm so easily to just pray for, you know, our little spheres instead of going further still. The Great Commission comes to mind here, and then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the very end of the age. Indeed, worldliness has been a better missionary in foreign countries than Christianity. If you go to Hong Kong, say now, in lieu of maybe 14 years ago when I went, so rampantly different. I mean, it, it looks like New York City and everybody's standing in line to get into a Louis Vuitton store or a whatever store to try to buy something. And they're working 24 hours a day so that they can buy this whatever prize that they're after. Think about this. Seriously, this is what our country's preaching. Where are the Christians? What do we have to say about this? Five more verses in Deuteronomy, and then I'm going to end. Five more. Get into James. The words, so that it may go well with you, so that it may go well with you in Deuteronomy occurs eight different times. So like a ding, ding, ding here. Do you want it to go well for us, for your children? Undoubtedly to emphasize the motive for our obedience. We learn and follow we are to learn and follow his commands. Chapter 4, 39 through 40 says, Acknowledge and take to heart this day that the Lord is God in heaven above and on earth below. There is no other. Keep his decrees and commands which I am giving you today so that it may go well with you and your children after you and that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you for all time. I mean, pray over the salvation of your children. Pray for the spouses of your children. Pray for their children to be that there wouldn't be any generation that would come from your gene pool that didn't know, love, and serve the Lord with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. Um, this is God's heart desire, as he tells Moses in Deuteronomy 5.29. He just he yearns. He yearns for his children's hearts, that they would be inclined to fear him and keep all of his commands always so that it might go well with them and their children and their children after them. And lastly, Moses tells words to the Israelites, it says in Deuteronomy 5, 32 through 33, and 6, 17 through 19. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the ways that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. So again, it's always blessings and obedience. It's consequences to disobedience. Be sure to keep the commands of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees he's given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you and you may go in and take over the good land the Lord promised on earth to your forefathers, thrusting out all your enemies, that's sin, thrusting out sin. You know, pray, God, search my heart. You, you take a, a flashlight through my whole body. Point out what is disappointing, displeasing, that's not pleasing to you, and help me get rid of it. And now, James, after this long prologue. James chapter 4. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, but you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask for the wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Hatred toward God. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that spirit caused to live with us intensely? 
He gives us, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves into God. Resist the devil. That sounds like something we need to do. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. When do I talk about resolve, firm resolve? This double-mindedness doesn't help anything. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up in due time. Brothers, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against his brother or judges him speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? <laughs> I'm going to interject that when uh, the seven sons of Seba or whatever were watching all Paul's doings and when he was casting out people and, you know, healing and whatever. And so they wanted that power and they were going about and trying to do something and all these demons jumped out and attacked them and beat them up and they ran home. Remember that story in scripture? And he goes, but they said before, they said, Jesus we know and Paul we've heard of, but who are you? Who are you? Brothers, do not slander one. I did that. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this city or that, spend a year, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not know what will happen tomorrow. You don't even know what's going to happen in 15 minutes from now. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and, and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. God, through the pen of James, continues to call us to higher still, to righteous living, to further on. Higher and higher. Jesus tells us that faith is hindered by, James, excuse me, tells us that faith is hindered by strife and contention, by prayerlessness and by worldliness. His response to these poor choices is submission to the will of God, enabling one to overcome all these tendencies through God's powerful indwelling spirit and the relinquishment of our fleshly wills. We can't do this on our own. He, he never said we could, but we can do it through his power, and he wants to do it through us. He condemns our worldliness and commands us to walk in faith, looking to God for his guidance from day to day. It is God that gives us more grace. Grace giving way to Christ. And his grace is sufficient to meet every need. Every need. Every need. In his high priestly prayer at the end of John, Jesus prays for his disciples, which then and now for us. I'm coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm still in the world, so that you may have the full measure of joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, that would have been an easy thing to do, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. 
As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. My prayer is not for them alone. Yay, thank you, Lord. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's every single one of us. That all of them may be one, just as we are one. Just as you are in me and I am in you, may they all be in us so that the world may believe you have sent me. John adds in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires are going to pass away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever. Nothing under the sun can fully satisfy the heart of man who is made for eternity and is restless until he finds rest in God. Nothing, nothing, nothing. It pleases the Father that all fullness should be in Christ. Therefore, there is nothing but emptiness anywhere else. Anywhere else. He fills that hall. He's the living water that fills every, every little place of you. Thou hast made us for thyself, Augustine says, and Augustine says, and the heart of man is restless until it finds rest in thee. Here's the divine antidote against the pride and restless ambition of the men of this world. Nothing is more sad than to witness a pushing, bustling, forward, self-confident spirit and style in those who profess to be followers of him who is meek and lowly in heart. It is such a flagrant contradiction of the spirit and precepts of Christianity, and it is a sure accompaniment of an unbroken condition of the soul. It's like, I'm going to play Christian. It is utterly impossible for anyone to indulge in a boastful, pretentious, self-confident spirit if ever he has really measured himself in the presence of God. To be much alone with God is the sovereign remedy for pride and self-complacency. May we know this reality in the secret of our own souls. May the good Lord keep us truly humble in all our ways, simply leaning on himself and his grace. That was Macintosh. Just as Jesus did not belong to the satanic world system, so believers do not. We belong to the heavenly kingdom because of our new births. Jesus prayed for the protection of his disciples. Now his second petition for them was for their sanctification. He wants them sanctified. He says, sanctified meaning to be set apart for special use. A believer is to be distinct. If you wallow in the pig pen, you're unusable, unusable. A believer is to be distinct from the world's sin, its values, and its goals. This means the means of the sanctifying work is God's truth, which we've always been talking about, as well as the Holy Spirit's power teaching us all things. The Spirit teaches us all things as we are in the Word. The truth is communicated in the Word, which is both personal and propositional. As the message about Jesus was heard, believed, and understood, the disciples' hearts and minds were both captured and captivated. This change in their thinking resulted in changes in their living, as it should. Like we've talked about, from the, it goes into our head, because if you just leave it there, it's just going to puff up. 
and, and, and get putrid, sit soaking sour. But it goes from the head to the heart to the hands. It manifests in what you do. This changes in their thinking resulted in changes in their living. The same is true to be for us today. As we appropriate God's word to our lives, we are sanctified. You take this and you, you take what you read and, and, and learn and you apply it to your heart and your, and your life. Set apart for God and changed in our living in order to honor God. You are a Christian. Be a Christian. Leaving the aroma of Christ in our every encounter, God's message set the apostles apart from the world so that they would do his will, not Satan's. And it has set us apart in our day as well. Remember, nothing under the sun can satisfy the heart of the man who is made for eternity, no matter what the world may be bellowing out. No matter how pretty that purple is, how pretty the, the house is, the, how handsome the man is, how well-behaved the children are, all of those things are nice, and they're all icing on top. There's nothing sadder than a grievous misunderstanding among saints. Amen? How often whole churches are in uproar, uproar because of the self-will of one or two who are quarreling over some ridiculous pettiness or selfishness. They're in my row. They're not singing, you know, praise and worship music. I mean, you know, they're they're you know they they wore something not cute to church. I don't know what the thing of it is. You know, wars and fighting will always arise from lust that war within our members. That is unrestrained and unlawful desires that are struggling for fulfillment in our beings. They're just struggling. It's, you know, you want what you want, but you can't get it. <laughs> you know, we must continually be pouring ourselves out like a drink offering for one on the sacrifice and service that comes from somebody else's faith. Think about that when you deny self for somebody else's wants or wishes. We must continually be telling ourselves, it is not about us, but it is all about Jesus. It's not about us. It's all about him. And what points to him? Do my actions point to him? Do my words point to him? Do my motives point to him? The seemingly better fortune of others, instead of leading us to be happy and congratulate them with all sincerity of heart for what God has given them or is doing through them, can often conversely fill us with envy and jealousy if we are not walking in faith and in the Spirit. We look at somebody else's giftings. We look at, I mean, this is so pitiful in the Christian faith, too. I mean, the same thing. You see something, you, know, you, you don't have that, and you want that. You're not satisfied what God has allowed in your life. Be content. Flesh is so uber easy to become envious and jealous, is it not? I mean, and for y'all, bless your little hearts, I don't know how you do it. You're constantly bombarded with pictures of people in, whole, in Hawaii <laughs> on vacay, sitting with their brown bodies and, and, and somebody bringing them a nice little drink and, and, a fan, and fanning them. <laughs> And their fingernails are long and they're not chipped. I mean, you know, they're just perfection. Everything is just perfection. Until you look after you take off. I, I have a visual of this because of my teeth. Yeah, you, or your teeth. Most of the teeth. You know, you see? It's just a Halloween mask. I mean, seriously. We want to act like we're something we're not. Be who you are. Be who you are. 
lashes so easy ever to get jealous. Then proceeds from an unholy restlessness which produces strife and confusion. Like spoiled children, we become fretful and quarrelsome, and nothing pleases us. We get annoyed. We want what we want when we want it, right? And I don't want to wait for the coffee to brew. I want it really hot, and I want, you know, I prefer a little napkin underneath it. <laughs> and, a, and a gardenia on the tray. <laughs> We're continually looking for something new in order that we may obtain this satisfaction that seems to ever elude us. One more thing. This will make me happy. One more trip. One more um, eating out. One, I don't care what you put in it. It's, gonna, it's the same thing. Yet nothing on earth satisfies that, that God-given void. As y'all have all experienced, I know. It was never intended to. Ever, ever, ever. Those things are the proverbial cherries on top. If he allows it, like I've told my kids, if he allows it, enjoy it. Don't, don't fight against what he allows in your life. Enjoy it. But if he chases it away, don't be whining and complaining about it either. And boy, that's so easy to do, like when your heat goes off or your water goes off. Or something that's just, we think is a necessity. Or your power goes off. Right, exactly. You know, or whatever. Nice, all these things are nice. But they're certainly not necessities. Jesus is a necessity. That void is to be filled by God alone. Get filled with Jesus every single day. So you will have something to give somebody else. Because if you don't, you're just another couple rocks out there with needs. Sadly, we often try a myriad of things before we go to God, forgetting that He alone meets these needs and satisfies these deepest desires. We are chastised by the Lord's accusations that we have failed to ask Him, who alone is the perfect fulfiller of all our heart longings. Does your heart long for something? Let Him fill that need. Our Lord bids us to ask that we might receive. We have not, James says, because we ask not. How very true this is of so many of us. We do not stir ourselves up to pray earnestly to God, who is the great provider of all things, beneficial and good. And by this very spirit of prayerlessness, we give evidence to the low state to which we have fallen. Paul writes in Thessalonians, um, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 22, be joyful always. I love these commands, always. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So basically when we're whining and complaining like Jonah did, you know, with the, with the vine and everything, we're saying, I don't like your will. I really don't like this. I could do better. I could choose better. The world could offer me more. And that's just a lie. It's just a lie. Get yourself, roll yourself back in. That is not true. That is not true. Only he can satisfy me. Do not put out the Holy Spirit's fire. Do, do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything. Take it back to here before you make it a core value. Hold on to the good. Avoid every kind of evil. 
When at last we do attempt to avail ourselves of the privilege of prayer, our petitions are so self-centered and so concerned about the gratifications of our fleshly desires that God cannot in faithfulness grant our request. True prayer is not asking God to do what we want, but first of all, just asking him to enable us to do that which he would have us to do and that which what he wants to do through us. As Epaphras prayed for the church at Colossae, which we've gone over a million times, you know, that Epaphras was one who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you stand firm in all God's will, mature and fully assured. Too often we endeavor by prayer to control God instead of taking the place of submission to his will. Thus we seek and receive not because if God answered um, by giving us what we desire, we would consume it on our lusts and pleasures. Don't misunderstand me. God does desire for us to pray our heart longings. You can tell him anything on all matters until it is resolved in our lives and over and over again until he says like Moses, okay, we're done with this conversation. But like Jesus, we must have the attitude of heart that he had the night before his death. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Get my wanter lined up with your wanter, Lord. Our God is a great giver who delights to pour forth much in the laps of his children. If, and that's a capital I-F, it will not harm them. You know yourself, if you give your children the whole 52 bags of sugar candy, whatever, they're not going to do well with that. The same way with God, it's the same principle. It is my belief as well that his no's to us are always for a far greater yes. And I have I've fleshed that out. I know that that's true. And there were some very hard no's that I did not want. I love this quote, and it's a little lengthy as John Newton. It is natural for us to wish and to plan, and to be, and it is merciful of the Lord to disappoint our plans and to cross our wishes. For we cannot be safe or happy until we are weaned from our own wills and made simply desirous of being directed by his guidance, just like the stupid sheep were. Although we understand this, we seldom learn to put it into practice without being trained for a while in the school of disappointment. The schemes we form look so plausible and convenient that when they are broken, we're ready to say, what a pity. We try again with no better success. We are grieved and perhaps angry and plan another and so on. Eventually, in the course of time, experience and observation begin to convince us that we are no more able than we are worthy to choose correctly for ourselves. The Lord's invitation to cast our cares upon him and his promise to take care of us appear invaluable. And when we have done planning, his plan in our favor gradually opens and he does more and better for us than we could either ask or think. I can hardly recollect a single plan of mine which, if it had taken place in the time and in the way I wanted, would, humanly speaking, have proved my ruin, or at least would have deprived me of a greater good that the Lord had designed for me. You don't want to miss his best by our poor choices. We judge things, this is my favorite part, by their present appearance, but the Lord sees them in their consequences. So I'm always telling y'all, play it all out. 
If we could do the same, we would be perfectly of his mind. But since we can't, it is an unspeakable mercy that he will manage for us, whether we are pleased with his management or not. And it is regarded as one of the heaviest judgments when he gives any person up to the way of their own hearts and to the walk according to their own wisdom. Keep us from that, Lord Jesus. To pray rightly, we must come apart and pray, or we will flat out come apart. Jesus will always, was always going to a solid, in solitude to a solitary place where he prayed. In Mark, we said, very, he, very early in the morning, Mark 135, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. If Jesus was doing this moment by moment, how much more so should his servants Ourselves, therefore, must enjoy God himself in the supreme object of our affections. Learn to savor the Savior. And don't rush about it in our rush, 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 rush world. And every time you sit there and you think, I've got to get up, I've got to get I don't have enough time, you know, take your mind back. I mean, it may take, I can't remember this one girl I read a bazillion years ago was talking about going on this retreat. She said it took her about two hours just to finally settle down. Because you get in your mind and you're just, just like, you know, things are popping up. Like, Lord, just take me, take my mind captive to your will. What are you trying to teach me? I mean, and time is such a luxury for y'all, I know. And so it's hard. It's very hard. And sometimes you have to get up very early in the morning while it was still dark. And then even then, you hear these footsteps. But it won't always be that way. And he stays. It is God God revealed in Christ to whom we owe our fullest affections and allegiance. Worldliness is spiritual adultery. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. I think I've already read this, but anyway, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and what he does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. The world refers, of course, not to the material universe, but to that ordered system that has rejected Christ. It consists of men and women under the domination of Satan, who is both the prince and God of this world. Whoever attempts to go on with the world in any measure is guilty of disloyalty to Jesus, whom it has spurned and crucified, and he who determines to be a friend of it constitutes himself to be an enemy of God. Many, many are the warnings of Scripture against unholy alliance of the children of God with the children of Satan. Worldliness is shunned throughout God's word. We are to be different, and we're not to blend with our surroundings. Come apart, he says, and be holy. It's God's command. Our actions are to point others to him. They are to know we are different by our life, just as Jesus was. The scripture speaks solemnly and definitely against the evil of worldliness, and when we refuse obedience to this, it is to our own peril because you get sucked in so quickly. James asks us if we think the scriptures warn us regarding this without reason. Do you think the scriptures warn us without reason about this? 
Every word of God is both purposeful and precious. Indeed, through the history of God's dealings with his people, he has always called them to a holy separation to himself. Come apart, come apart, come apart, and be holy. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit, indwelling every true believer of Christ, yearns enviously as he is grieved and distressed when we prove unfaithful to Jesus, who he came to point us always, point us to, who has redeemed us into the Father, who has blessed us so richly into the Holy Spirit himself, as we shun his power from within to overcome the fleshly desires of this dark world. The Holy Spirit yearns over us with a holy envy or jealousy, for our God is a jealous God, desirous that he would have us holy for himself. Why? Because he knows it's for our good. He is fully aware that our divided allegiance means disaster in our own experience and dishonors him who rightly claims us as his own. It has ever been the effort of the devil to break down the wall of separation and to lead the two groups to become so intermingled that, they all, that all vital testimony for God is destroyed. You think about the Israelites. He was always, do not intermarry with them. Their wives will take you down because you'll start worshiping their gods. And so he was very clear about that. He wanted them to be separate. It is not possible to go in fellowship with the world and yet walk in fellowship with God. Scripture tells us in Exodus 19, 3 through 6, Then Moses went up to God and, and the Lord and called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob. This is God speaking. And what you are to tell the house of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. And we too are priests, Christians in this day. We may shrink from the complete surrender to his will involving utter separation from the world. But as Augustine said, God's commandings are God's enablings. We look at it in fear. We should look at nothing in fear should stand firm. What he requests, he gives us the the ability to, to do, as James states, but he gives us more grace. Giving way to grace, giving way to grace. It's like a waves. It's like waves and waves and waves. We are bidden to come boldly to the throne of grace that we may find help in our time of need. This grace is given freely to all who come to Jesus in humility. God knows we need his strength for our actions to glorify him. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. I am the vine. You are the branches. Anybody that, that um, you know, doesn't bear fruit, I cut off. And whoever does, you know, I, I, I give more to. He who's... We are and whom we should continually serve is ever ready to supply the needed strength, enabling us to rise above the allurements of the world. And y'all, the, the world is loud, and, and, and it starts, our churches start to blend. They start thinking, well, that was, that was just in the past, you know. This is, this is modern thinking. I am the same. I, the Lord, do not change. Those words should be impressed on your heart. I don't change. 
I was the same in Genesis as I am in Revelations. I was the same back in, 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 in uh, Adam and Eve's day that I am in, in your day, Beth. Um, but this is done. We must, he who, he whose we are and whom we should serve should continue, is ever ready to supply the needed strength in enabling us to rise above the allurements of the world. But we, this must be done in humility. We approach his throne in lowliness. It is in stooping that God lifts, always. Scripture tells us, though the Lord is on high, he looks upon the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. He mocks proud mockers, but gives grace to the humble. And Peter tells us, all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast your anxiety on him because he cares for you. He cares for you. And not only does he care for you, but he cares for everything that pertaineth to you. Your spheres he cares for. Live near to Jesus, Spurgeon said, Christian, and it is a matter of secondary importance whether you live on the mountain of honor or in the valley of humiliation. Living near to Jesus, you are covered with the wings of God, and underneath you are the everlasting arms. Let nothing keep you from that hallowed communion that is the unique privilege of a life hidden in Christ. Do not be content with the occasional meeting or the put prayer up like that, but always seek to retain his company. For only in his presence will you find either comfort or safety. Jesus should not be for us a friend who we call on now and then, but one with whom we are in constant touch. The friend, scripture says, that sticks closer than a brother. Voices from the path. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand. This is what he writes. The humble soul endeavors more how to glorify God in afflictions than how to get out of them. Think about that. How do you glorify it when you have something you don't want? How can I glorify him through this? Make it count in your mind. David, Daniel, excuse me, the three children, the apostles, and these worthies of whom the world was not worthy were such. They were not seeking to get out of their afflictions, but were concerned for the glory of God. You know, how can I do such a thing? How could I do this thing and dishonor God? They were willing to be anything and bear anything that God might be glorified. They made it their business to glorify God in the fire, in the prison, in the den, meaning on the... Uh, rack and under the sword the humble soul says Lord keep down my sins and keep up my heart to honor you in all my troubles though my burdens are doubled and troubles multiply help me to honor you by trusting that this is for my good and your glory everyone surpassing the other by waiting the waiting is sometimes the hardest and submitting to you and I shall sing my cares away and say it is enough oh 
But when a proud man under the trouble is full of plans to get out and get off of his chains and out of the furnace, the proud heart will say anything. They will do anything and they will be anything to free themselves from the burdens that press in on them. Bob was telling me about, he was reading uh, On This Day in History by Robert Morgan, and I don't know who it was, but he was, somebody was telling him to recant, some queen, um, I think it was Mary, was telling him to recant. It was probably during Luther's time, and I don't really remember who this person was, but anyway. And so he, I mean, they were just doing all these horrible things to him that, that even we can't even imagine. And finally he, he said, okay, I'll recant. And then he, he was just so overcome. He, and to recant, he had to sign this thing. And so they, they made him sign this thing. And then he had to go in front of the queen. And he went in front of the queen, and he, and he says, I'm, I'm changing. I'm, I'm sorry. I should not have done that. I, and they immediately take him, and they burn him in the fire. And he says, burn this hand first, because it's the one that went against it. You know, it's like, like, um, I don't know. We want to be we 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 want to be free, and we're under all this duress and this press, and it's like, okay, I'll do it. And then you think, oh no, I can't do it. It's like that girl that I was telling y'all about, that Christine Kane, you know, and she said, I just wanted to ring the bell. I'm done. This is hard. I can't do this anymore. And, and, and she goes, but but where will I go? Like Peter said, Lord, what will we do? When he said, well, Are you going to leave me, Jane? Where, where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Yes, this is hard, but it's hard for unbelievers too. Don't get you don't don't be wronged about that. They have death, they have sickness, they have drug addicts, they have divorce, they have everything you want to think of. We have an answer. They have none. A little will satisfy the humble soul, but nothing will satisfy a proud man's heart. The humble says, Lord, give me bread and clothing and you shall be my God. Give me much of Christ and heaven in my heart and food convenient to support my natural life. And it is enough. The proud are never content. A crown did not contend, content Ahab. He wanted Naboth's, Naboth's vineyard. Diogenes was more content with a tub to shelter him and a wooden dish to eat in than Alexander had with the conquest of half the world and all the treasures, pleasures, and glories of Asia. A humble soul is more content with Daniel's vegetable than proud princesses are with crowns and golden scepters. The humble soul always also rejoices in the graces and accomplishments of others. Not in, 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 in envy and rivalry, as well as its own. There is no envy in spiritual things. There is to be no envy in spiritual things. James tells us the repentant hearts, we bow in submission to the will of God to obtain the grace needed to triumph over every foe. Lord, when you get up in the morning, just cover yourself in prayer, Lord. I'm walking. Don't let me be tempted beyond what I'm able to bear, but show me how to escape this. We need not run in terror from Satan's assaults or faint in fear when he seeks to overcome us. All we need to do is stand firm in all the will of God, firm with the armor of God, resisting Satan in the power of faith. Scripture tells us, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. You be strong in that. 
Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when, not if, but when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything, to stand. It doesn't say battle. It says to stand. You stand. Because the righteous stand in the judgment, but sinners don't. Stand firm then with a belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in place and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith which extinguishes all, not some, extinguishes all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. That was in Ephesians. James and Peter both agree with Paul as they too write under the guidance of the overruling Holy Spirit. James says, submit yourselves into God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. He's, he will flee from you. Submit is a military term meaning to be, subordinate, to be subordinated and to render obedience. Resist means take a stand against. Take a stand against the devil, and he will flee. Peter declares, be self-controlled and alert. Don't be drowsy and sleepy. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Like I told y'all before, like a city, his walls are broken down as a man lacks self-control. And whenever you have a breach in that, whenever you allow sin to get in, it is where Satan shoots. And he's a very, very good shot. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory. I love that. All grace. It all comes from him. Who calls you to this eternal glory in Christ. After you have suffered a little while, will himself, will he himself will restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be power forever and ever. Amen. By the use of the word, and in dependence upon God in prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, we become impregnable against the assaults of the evil one. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, and if you can get a modern-day version of that, that was Spurgeon's next to the Bible's favorite book. It was at Forgetful Green where he was taken off guard that Christian was to, point, was to the point of being defeated by Pollyon. But when he regained the sword of the spirit, the word, the foe fled. The old saying is true. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. That's why he always is constantly trying to get us interruptions when we seek to pray. It's amazing. You'll be all there. Nobody will be there. And all of a sudden, oh God. you know, ten people will come or show up. Bunyan also adds, prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, 
and a scourge to Satan. Chambers, echoing that sentiment, says, The prayer of the feeblest saint on earth who lives in the spirit and keeps right with God is a terror to Satan. He does not like it. And expect opposition. Just like you go to the Word, expect to be fed. Don't go think, okay, as a duty. It's a duty. Be prepared. The very powers of darkness are paralyzed by prayer. Paralyzed. No spiritualistic seance can succeed in the presence of a humble, praying saint. No wonder Satan tries to keep our minds fussy active, in active work to, so that we cannot think in prayer. The Bible also tells us no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. No temptation. But what's common? I mean, we think we're the only ones that have these problems. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. He can put you in situations far beyond your ability to endure, as Paul says in Corinthians. So don't misquote this. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it, as we've said before, and look for the door of escape. Several intensely practical admonitions follow in the next three verses. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. He never refuses to meet the one who sincerely seeks his face. He never turns one away. Surely we can say with King David in Psalm seventy-three twenty-eight. But as for me, it's good for me to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. As well as the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews ten nineteen through twenty-three. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, and this was a big deal for the Jews. Once a year, you know, they could be, their sins were sacrificed, and they had to make sure that the high priest was totally perfect according to the rules. And I mean, it was a big deal, and they wanted to make sure, because they were, this high priest was bringing their sins in before God to be forgiven. And if he had one thing on him that was wrong or done wrong, he would die on the spot. And then when Jesus was crucified, the veil was ripped from the top to the bottom. You have access now, girlfriend. You have access to me. You have access to come and sit in my lap. You have access to come pour out your heart to me. You have access to come and dance before me with thanksgiving and joy. You have access to the God that created all things, to the God who knows all things, to the guy whose plans can never be thwarted. And we say, eh, i got to go do this. We take our access. This is huge. This is, this is huge. Through the curtain, which I just told you was ripped, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. There's nothing like being washed away. All my sins, Lord. Start fresh every day. I love a new, new start, with a clean piece of paper. Let us hold unswervingly to this hope that we possess. 
Because why? For he who promised is faithful. He's faithful God who does no wrong, upright, and just as he. To fail, to avail ourselves of this so high privilege is to wrong our own souls. We rob our own souls when we do. As well as to dishonor him who invites us to draw near to him. But if we do approach him, we must come with clean hands and pure hearts. For he detests hypocrisy and he detests double-mindedness. We must approach with chastened and humble spirits as well. Grieve, mourn, and wail, James says. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. For far too long in our country and sadly even in our churches, we've been guilty of carelessness and filled with a lack of concern to please our, our, our Father. The place of repentance and sorrow being far distant from us. God has been dishonored by our lack of actions, our levity, and our worldliness. As we take the place of confession and self-judgment before him, bearing a contrite and humbled heart, he is ready to grant forgiveness, cleansing, and strength for the conflicts before us. Remember what King David said, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a contrite heart, O Lord, you will never despise and you never turn away. His promise to us, his promise says, I don't know, I don't know definite, will, he will never retract it. He tells us as we humble ourselves, he will lift us up in due time. And when he lifts us up, it's so much better than yourself trying to lift yourself up. He will not rake over the coals of for our past failures, whether he remains ready to reach out his hand and help when we come to the end of ourselves. In Psalm 18, he says, he, he reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my violent enemy, from my, from my foes who were too strong for me. See, it's like these things were too strong for me. Yes, I know, Beth, they're too strong for you. I will help you. Like, he confronted me on the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. Don't just think, I can't do, if when you do, he's like, he, he wants you to get to the point. I can't do this. Yes, you're right. You can't do this. But I can through you, if you will let me. And don't beat up yourself. If he's forgiven you, then you forgive yourself. He remains ready to reach out his hand of help when we come to the end of ourselves. The way up is always down for the Christian. The lowly one becomes the lifted one. There is a marked advantage to humility because it always brings honor. If saints are to walk together in mutual respect and fellowship, there must be no indulgence in evil speaking. And this is so hard for women. It's hard for me. I don't know if it's hard for y'all. We are not to slander one another or speak against our brothers and sisters. To do so is to reflect on God himself, who is in his infinite love and mercy has received us all and put us into this place of holy fellowship with one another. There's no chance or happenstance. He orchestrates everything. We are all accountable to him, every last one of us. He is the supreme lawgiver as well. If we pass judgment on our brethren, we are speaking evil of the law and therefore reflecting upon him who gave it. We are each to answer for ourselves before God. I cannot answer for my brothers or sisters, nor they for me. 
we are all alike called to be doers of the law, that is, to render obedience to the word. Evil speaking is in itself disobedience. So if I indulge in it and speak despairingly about my brother or sister, condemning them for their disobedience, I am utterly inconsistent because I am disobedient also. Each must give an account directly to God, who is able to save and destroy. What right have I to judge another? Paul's words are appropriate here in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God in 1 Corinthians 4, 5. And I want to interject a little bit right here because it's not to say, because Paul does give, Scripture does give um, in Corinthians, you know, how... um, it's right, but in, in great humility, going to somebody that is wallowing in sin and trying to help them, you know. And but that's through prayer, and that was through leadership in leadership. So that is not wrong. But oftentimes, when we go, we just are are talking about people to try to make ourselves feel better, you know, that they that they do or compare ourselves. Well, we're not that bad because I don't do that or whatever. In, in, a, in a funny way, trying to, to lift ourselves up. Our Lord himself commanded in Matthew, likewise in Matthew 7, 1, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged for the, in the same way. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in a man's eyes and, and take no regard of the log in your own eye? He says... Although we know that no man can be sure of even another hour of life, let alone of days, months, and years, yet we make our plans and arrangements as though we're sure we're going to be here for years to come. It is not wrong to do this if it is all held in subjection to God's will. You know, he wants us to plan. We are to plan. But it's not this way. You know, that's, that's wanting what we want when we want it. We must look ahead and seek in order... Uh, and to order our affairs that we can do what is right and necessary as the time goes by. But we are here warned against making much plans in independence of God. You know, he says in Proverbs 12, 27, 1, Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. But he also says that, you know, to trust in, in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will direct your paths. Like bring your plans to him and ask him, Lord, you know, I'm going forward with this. Close the door if this is not of you, you know, whatever. God is desirous, and sometimes it's just wait. That's that's the hardest thing. It's like, you know, you're waiting, waiting, waiting to see what he wants us to do. And that's an answer, too. Um It uh, would seem hardly necessary to be reminded of this, and yet we foolishly forget so readily that that we don't know what tomorrow brings. Our life is but a breath. It is ours for a little time, at the most a few scores of years, and then it vanishes away. We're creatures of a day, yet we act as though we're going to be here forever. But this is not our home. Heaven is our home. We are really sojourners. We are really pilgrims. James brings this section to a close with a serious reminder in James 4, 17. Anyone then, anyone then, who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it sins. Is that like, 
Like, uh, anyway, James tells us that to attain spiritual maturity, a believer must do the good he know, now knows. He must stand confidently on God's word, even in trials and temptations. He must compassionately serve his brothers and sisters in Christ without prejudicial favoritism, but with practical faith. He must speak carefully with a controlled tongue and wise, cultivated thought. And he must submit in contrition to his all-powerful father, lawgiver, judge with a humble spirit, just actions, and a trusting heart. He must be what God wants him to be. Do what God wants him to do. Speak as God wants him to speak. And sense what God wants him to sense. And Paul tells us that may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and body, soul and body, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. I don't have time to read um, from this book, but this is uh, uh, Beholding and Becoming. It's, it's really a cool book. It's, uh, it's really a pretty book. Uh, it's by that Ruth Chu Simmons or whatever her name is. But she was talking about, um, last night when I was reading it, I thought, ooh, I, if I had time, I'd read this. But um, anyway, he was just faith, talking about faithfulness, being faithful to what he's called us to do. And sometimes that's just so not glamorous. She's the one that has the six little boys, you know. And I mean, I can't imagine having six boys. But anyway, she was saying, uh, Jesus demonstrated success by doing exactly what the Father gave him to do. For Jesus, faithfulness was success. Faithfulness was success. So be faithful in what you do, what you call, what he's called you to do. Be faithful. He's got a plan, and you want to walk in it. Be faithful to it. And don't be looking at somebody else's plan thinking, that's so much better. I'd like to be doing that because that's easy to do. Let me close in prayer. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Lord, it's hard word. Lord, help us to embrace what you allow. Help us to uh, desire it your will above all things, Lord. Strengthen us with all power according to your glorious might that we may have great endurance and great patience and great joy, Lord. May we leave the aroma of Christ in our families and our friends and the spheres that we're with today. May we um, please you, Lord, in all that we say and do and think. All for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so next week is chapter five. Not all of chapter five, so... Yes, wow.